The year was 1975, when you could turn on your television at any given time and see children in their homes in America um, in pain with thirst. And that there was only one man who decided that he would go out of his way to satiate their thirst, to quench it. And he would do so even if it meant running through a wall for them. And this man, of course, we know is the Kool-Aid man, filled (laughs) to the very brim with red delicious punch. Now, the Kool-Aid man reveals himself in this wall-shattering manner, and we'd often wish that Christ would satiate our thirst in a similar way, that he would run through walls detecting our thirst for his grace and revealing himself in a loud, oh yeah, fashion. But, of course, he doesn't, and he's much more subtle, and he hides behind the sacraments when he does. And he's so subtle that even in his first miracle, when he reveals his glory, he does it at a small wedding in Cana, in Galilee, where there's almost no one there, a very small community. And he does it, at a marriage as well, one of the most um, hidden and normal institutions that there are. And at this marriage, he is there for a pivotal moment, whenever they run out of wine. And while we might look at this wedding in Cana and say, that is so strange, this is supposed to be a seven-day festivity in Jewish tradition. And you've run out of wine in the very first day? How do you do that? But Jesus is there for that pivotal moment. And that seems strange to us, but for some reason it does not seem strange to us that maybe that the divorce rate is above 50%, or that even now today, like most people aren't even, young people aren't even getting married. They just cohabitate until comfortable. And that to be in a relationship, maybe dating a relationship for seven years and to be married for only two, it's like, how could we have been dating for this long and then find out that the wine has run out, that the love has run out, so to speak, just after two short years or five short years, and now we are in this position. We have no more wine. The marriage is over. What happens? And so I just kind of want to evaluate the answer to that question, why is that that we set ourselves up as a culture so often for failures in marriages and it always seems to sneak up on us, uh, whether if we are in the marriage or just observing it as a family member? I don't think that um, the old adage, love is blind, is very accurate. Love is blind. What is more accurate and what saints throughout the tradition have seen is that there are some sins that cause blindness particularly. Maybe greed will cause hardness of heart. Maybe laziness, sloth will cause despair. But lust particularly of all the seven vices causes spiritual blindness. And here's why is because if I put the most naturally good thing on earth, 
and lifted above all other things and see the goods of the marital act as better than everything else, what I'm going to do is put it on the altar in front of the tabernacle, so to speak, to where if I love the marital act so much, it's, I'm going to have a hard time seeing God. I'm going to have a hard time understanding his law. And if I do that in my relationships and I let infatuation blind me or lust blind me, then I will never able to truly love. And it will be hard to see God in the relationship and it will frankly be hard to see the other person that I'm in the relationship with. Because I'm looking at an image that I have formed that fills me with feelings of infatuation rather than at the person themselves. And so oftentimes it's not love that's blind and love that gets us in trouble with these uh, relationships that are set up for failure, but it's rather infatuation. It's rather lust. And I say that term lust because maybe it doesn't always express itself in the sexual act, but perhaps it expresses itself emotionally. Perhaps it expresses itself in a kind of emotional idolatry. And this infatuation will blind us. And so what are we supposed to do? What are we supposed to do in our relationships? How do we see the other clearly to know if this is a marriage relationship um, that I can pursue? And how do I see myself clearly to know if I am fit to marry? Now, I'll just give very simple, broad answers. But I do think that it's interesting that a lot of times we are so shocked whenever marriages end in divorce or relationships end terribly, because not because of a lust problem, but because of a culture problem of how we see ourselves as doing good. So because of centuries of poor thinking, we are now in an age where we evaluate how we are doing good in life by our therapeutic wellness. For instance, if I feel a certain sense of satisfaction in my life, I certain, feel a certain sense of well-being in my life, maybe even a certain sense of health or a certain sense of joy, contentment, that I evaluate my life based off of how I experience my life, how I feel, rather than how I am by my moral character. And so we take this kind of therapeutic sense of like feeling good, how do I feel about myself, and, and identify with that rather than, am I actually morally good right now? Am I making good choices? Am I forming good virtues with my life? And if I'm doing that, then who cares? But what I care more about is if I feel good about myself and my state of life. Now that becomes a problem. We see how that very clearly happens with relationships. Why? Because, you know, I enter into the relationship with said girl, what happens? Well, I like the relationship. I felt content the whole time. And it turns out she likes the relationship. She's felt content the whole time. In fact, we're more happy now that we are in the relationship than we were before the relationship. And we've been in this relationship for maybe a year now, and so what's to say that this will stop in the future? If I've been happy all the time, then it will surely continue, right? And we do that without ever evaluating, is this person, does this person have the boring virtues that make for a relationship? Is this person just 
a generally loyal person? Not just to me, but to everyone else around them. Are they a generally faithful person? So not just to me, but to everyone else around them. Are they generally responsible? Are they conscientious? Are they temperate? Do they have self-control? All of these boring virtues that make for normal human relationships, we should expect in the most supreme relationship, in marriage. If we're not looking for those boring virtues and seeing that, then we are setting ourselves up for, for failure. I'll give you an image just to consider the, how we evaluate these virtues. It's not a small thing that Christ's first miracle that we hear about in the gospel is related to his last. In his first miracle, he changes water into wine. In his last miracle, he changes wine into his own blood. Changes wine into his own blood. And as we know, whenever he changes wine into his own blood, and the priest continues that miracle at every Mass, there's no real distinguishable difference. It looks like wine, it even tastes like wine, but it is certainly the blood of Christ. But we in faith, trusting who Christ is, look beyond the appearance and see in that Jesus himself. And so it is in fruitful and faithful long relationships that, like Moses, who looks at the burning bush, needs enough time and attention to distinguish, hey, this bush is on fire, but it's not being consumed. In that same way, does a lover look at the one whom he loves and with time and attention say, hey, actually, that person has this virtue, where they're kind to people that don't love them back, or they're self-disciplined even when no one is looking, and that we start to look and see the, this beauty that goes beyond the person's appearance to notice their character, to notice their real virtues, who they reveal themselves to be over a long period of time. And that, again, this cannot be rushed, cannot be just a byproduct of infatuation, but has to take a long, honest, and loving look at the person who I consider to evaluate whether that person has the boring virtues, those virtues that make for marriage. It is also not insignificant that in that last miracle of changing it into the wine into his blood, that the effect of this miracle is charity, that supreme virtue, that is love that is not supremely self-interested, but supremely disinterested, one that is going to sacrifice itself for the one he loves. And that is the crowning virtue that we must look for in ourselves and look for in one another if we desire to have Jesus present at those humble marriages that we one day hope to live out.